Joining me today on the Human Progress Podcast is Scott Lincecombe, a trade expert and the Director of General Economics at the Cato Institute's Center for Trade Policy Studies. He is also a senior visiting lecturer at Duke University Law School, where he has taught a course on international trade law. Prior to joining Cato, Lincecombe spent two decades practicing international trade law at White & Case LLP, where he litigated national and multilateral trade disputes and advised multinational corporations on global trade rules and national regulations. He holds a law degree from the University of Virginia, is routinely featured on TV, radio, and print media, and writes the Capitalism newsletter at The Dispatch. That's capitalism spelt with an O, like the building where Congress meets. And he also has just a great and lively Twitter presence. So if you're a fan of the Human Progress Twitter feed, I recommend checking out his Twitter as well. And he joins the podcast today to discuss his forthcoming book, Empowering the New American Worker, Marketplace Solutions for Today's Workforce. Scott, how are you? Oh, how are you? Well, so tell me about the book and what prompted you to write it. Sure. Uh, well, I'll start with what prompted me to write it. Uh, so, you know, about a year ago, um, I was participating in, in several discussions about uh, policy to help American workers, because uh, everybody in Washington these days uh, is into uh, helping the American worker, right? Starting at least in 2016, uh, you had President Trump talking about, you know, helping the Amer American worker. Uh, President Biden has a pro-worker trade policy and other things. And um, all the policies, though, that they're offering uh, really were heavy in new government programs, right? It was always, oh, we need wage subsidies, or we need protectionism, or we need immigration restrictions, or uh, paid family leave, and we need to ban independent contracting, all these types of pro-worker policies that struck me, you know, as a libertarian, it's not very uh, pro-worker, certainly not pro-freedom, um, but also seem to suffer from a lot of flaws. Um, and so I when I was talking about some of these flaws and some of the things that that most of the pro-worker agenda you hear from politicians and wonks in Washington, um, I realized that there's a, a book here to be to be written, um, a book that uh, Cato was ideally situated to uh, publish because we have so many scholars here that while they don't focus on labor policy in particular, um, talk about policies and promote policies that workers care a lot about, you know, like say healthcare or education, for example. So that was kind of the initial process. And and uh, what the book essentially is, is a compilation of those ideas. Um, and I think it stems from the fact that, uh, you know, these, these pro-worker policies that we talk about really uh, suffer from a lot of what I would call fatal flaws. Um, I mean, first, they really seem to misdiagnose the situation, the kind of the plight of the American worker, right? Um, you know, because in a lot of ways, uh, things are okay for American workers, uh, the median American workers, so kind of, you know, the guy in, in the middle. Um, you know, if you look at, for example, median wages, if you look at quality of life, which of course human progress knows all about, uh, there are a lot of uh, points of optimism 
you know, uh, median wages in the United States have actually increased pretty substantially since the 1990s. Um, consumption and material wealth has increased also pretty substantially over that same period. Um, now, that said, though, there are some real challenges that American workers face. Uh, and prior to the pandemic, for example, um, it was we were seeing declining uh, business and dynamism, labor dynamism and the rest. Uh, in other words, people weren't switching jobs as much, which is typically a sign of a healthy labor market. Moving jobs typically helps with national productivity, worker productivity, you know, you move to a place that you're better suited to work, but also helps with wages and, and other things. Um, but also they weren't moving from, from town to town. Um, and so um, we had some dynamism problems. Business formation was down. People weren't going out on their own and starting businesses as much. Um, and then certainly there were discrete concerns with things like healthcare prices and childcare prices and educational issues and the rest. So there were some uh, real challenges for American workers, but pro-worker policies weren't doing a great job of targeting them. Um, and this, I think, I mentioned these kind of fatal flaws. Um, I think there's a there's a three big ones that almost all pro-worker policy right now really misses. First is that for all the things that workers do care about, housing and uh ability to change jobs or move into new jobs, uh, flexibility in, in, in jobs and the rest. Um, these policies tend to ignore, or these proposals tend to ignore, all of the existing laws and regulations that are actually uh, harming American workers, um, you know, making it difficult to improve themselves. Um, so this is things like occupational licensing restrictions or criminal justice issues um, or, or labor regulations, problems in um, a restrictions on business formation and home-based businesses and so on. Um, we also see a lot of laws and regulations out there um, at the federal and state level that that discourage mobility and and independence. Um, so you know we talked about declining mobility, declining dynamism. Well, you know we have uh, laws that restrict or discourage remote work. We have laws that uh, make it costly in terms of moving for transportation issues. Um, we have uh, a lot of laws related to benefits, uh, particularly healthcare, but others that tend to tie workers to certain jobs or certain places. Um, and then, you know, our welfare system as well uh, tends to keep uh, people trapped in poverty, dependent on welfare, and instead of actually pushing people to, to become independent. Um, and then finally, on living standards, um, we have plenty of uh, of laws and regulations that make healthcare more expensive, that make housing more expensive, that make uh, education at the K, you know, children's education more difficult, um, raise the cost of childcare or of clothing and and food. And so, um, like I said, pro worker proposals totally ignore all of that. So that's the first problem. Um, the second problem is they. Uh, pro-worker proposals tend to, uh, in terms of their solutions, um, really, they don't try to actually re reform 
the aforementioned problems, right? They tend to just say, ah, okay, well, you know, workers are struggling with uh, childcare costs. Let's just give them more money, more taxpayer money, right? You know, we're not going to actually reform the laws and regulations that make childcare more expensive. We're just going to, you know, give people money or we'll mandate that employers do this. And so they, they, it's always just more government programs, bigger government programs, not actually embracing market-oriented reforms um, that, again, sometimes it's just about repealing or reforming the stuff on the books, or but the other times it's about using markets um, to, to do what markets do well, which is the efficient delivery of, of uh, goods and services, right, um, which a lot of concerns workers have are in that space. Um, and then the third flaw that these proposals really seem to suffer from is that they really tend not to understand who the American worker is. Uh, you know, if you listen to President Biden or a lot of Republicans in Congress, um, you, you'd come away thinking that the vast majority of the American workforce is a unionized guy in his 40s or 50s that works at a manufacturing plant uh, or is a um, college-educated urbanite single female that, um, and, and, you know, there's there's really, those, of course, those people exist, um, but they're, they're pretty outdated stereotypes. Uh, you know, the vast majority of the American workforce, for example, uh, works in services, not in manufacturing. Um, workers are less worried these days about higher wages. You know, everybody wants to boost wages. It's all about minimum wage policies and the rest. Um, but workers are actually are less worried about wages than they are about flexibility and quality of life. Um, workers are uh, increasingly working in remote work or in the gig economy or independent work. Um, you know, the, uh, freelance uh, is a really big part of the economy these days. And by the way, it's not like Uber drivers. Uh, the most freelance workers are really high paid. Um, and so while the pro-worker proposals in Washington um, focus on these kind of traditional stereotypical jobs, they ignore the vast majority of the American workforce. And, and thus, they tend to offer policies that while they might say, uh, might might help those stereotypes actually are going to harm a lot of the rest of the workforce. I'll give you a really simple example. Um, you know, I mentioned manufacturing. So, you know, tariffs on steel might help steel workers, right? But they're going to harm uh, everybody else. Um, and that includes a lot of manufacturing workers in industries that consume steel, um, which happen to outnumber steel workers by like 40 to one or more. So um, we have tend to have these myopic policies that really ignore what American workers want, where the American workforce is and where it's going, uh, and tend to offer policies that um, really are gonna do more harm than good, while of course also you know, expanding government in the process. Right, so the, that's a good overview of the different aspects of the book and how the narrative about the American worker uh, may be unnecessarily gloomy. The reality might be a little bit more nuanced and how policies have failed to keep up with the changing reality of the American workforce. Could you talk a little bit more about that changing reality? Uh, some things that you mentioned in the capitalism column introducing this book, which we're going to link to when we put up this podcast, 
is the changing nature of education, for example. You write about non-college pathways to success. You talk about how not only are manufacturing workers, uh, you know, a smaller and smaller part of the workforce, but most blue collar workers are not manufacturing workers. You talk about sure. many different changes in the American workforce. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? For sure. So let's start, I think, again, let's start with manufacturing, right? So there is an obsession in Washington that we need to boost uh, manufacturing jobs via tariffs and industrial policy and uh, subsidies and, and the rest. Um, now, look, manufacturing is fine. The United States is the second largest manufacturing nation in the world. Uh, but like you said, um, when it comes to blue collar work in America, even for uh, less educated males, right? Everybody is worried about labor force participation among less educated males. Well, if you look at the data, you see that uh, men, male-dominated industries um, in services, so uh, things like transportation and material moving, so uh, either Amazon workers or truck drivers or whatever, um, or in... Uh, installation maintenance and repair so plumbers and air conditioning repair guys and the rest or in construction and mining um so these industries these male dominated blue collar industries actually outnumber manufacturing workers uh by about 4 to 1 so there are about 32 million uh male dominated service workers and about 8 million manufacturing workers. So that should, you'd think, inform our our pro-worker policy, right? Because again, if you're slapping tariffs like we do on lumber, let's use construction as a really good example, right? So uh, 8 million workers in construction and extraction, 8 million workers in manufacturing is about the same. So if you uh, slap tariffs on construction materials like we do, we have tariffs on all sorts of construction materials. Now, the idea is, ah, we're going to boost blue-collar workers, right? Well, you might help a couple manufacturing industries that make those construction materials, that make nails, for example. We have tariffs on nails. Um, but you're going to harm workers in construction, the, the workers that use those exact products, because you're going to, of course, going to raise the price of those products. You're going to make it uh, costlier for um, businesses to operate in, in construction, but in all sorts of other things. And of course, you're also going to hurt uh, home buyers. You're going to increase construction costs. You're going to increase home prices and the rest. So you're, going to, you're going to end up harming far more workers in the same exact uh, demographics that you're targeting than you're going to end up helping. I think that's a really big problem in a lot of this pro-worker stuff we talk about. Um, but it, it, I think there are there are plenty of other examples outside of of manufacturing. Um, you know, you mentioned. I think education is another really good example. Um, there remains an obsession in a lot of Washington that the only way to have a good job these days is to go to college, right? You uh, go to a K-12 education, which has really one goal, and that's to prepare you to go to college. Uh, and we can, we can get into whether it actually is preparing people for college. But but that aside, the goal is, is traditional goal is 
K-12 education gets you a GPA, you take your SATs or whatever, you you end up, you know, you, you go to college, you get a four-year degree, then maybe you go to law school or whatever. Uh, and and finally, uh, after taking out a bunch of student loans, of course, uh, you, you get a job. The reality, though, is that there are plenty of uh, non-college pathways to a really good life and a good job. Um, you know, you look at for example, uh, one of my favorite headlines recently was that Walmart announced that store managers at Walmart were going to make up to $200,000 a year. Uh, Walmart also said it was going to pay first-year truck drivers $110,000 uh, and is going to pay for their training and licensing to uh, to for those jobs. And, and of course, they're still struggling to find enough workers to do that. Um, we see that, you know, store managers at Whole Foods can make a hundred grand. Um, there are uh, plenty of other uh, hybrid type systems, right? That that have some additional post high school education, but not through a traditional four year degree. Uh, Google, for example, now offers certificates um, that are the equivalent. Uh, they treat, uh, Google treats as equivalent of having a four year degree in, in computer science. Uh, you have uh, online education um, has, you know, become a big, bigger thing during the pandemic as well. Um, and then you also, I think, so that's, that's, I think, again, a major misconception of how we are preparing the American worker for the future of tomorrow. Now, certainly uh, going to college is the right step for a lot of people. Um, but uh, I think the kind of cultural, political pressure to push everybody through college, right? We're going to subsidize, heavily subsidize student loans. Now we're going to apparently forgive a bunch of them. Um, we're going to saddle people with a lot of debt. Uh, and then everybody's going to end up working, you know, in some sort of uh, profession that requires a college degree um, is, is really a problem um, because you end up with, well, what we have right now. And that's a lot of people with uh, a lot of debt, and then with an education that they're not really even using, um, if they even completed those degrees in the first place. So that actually ends up harming a lot of workers, not to mention, of course, taxpayers and the rest, um, when you end up uh, uh, forgiving these loans or subsidizing them. Um, it also, these subsidies can also inflate tuition costs. You know, everybody worries about uh, the increasing price of tuition. Well, the, the New York Federal Reserve a couple of years ago uh, did a study finding that, um, you know, it's for every dollar increase in federal tuition subsidies, uh, you get about a 60 cent increase in tuition. So, the, and this, of course, makes perfect sense. When you restrict the supply of higher education as we do through accreditation pro, pro and the rest, uh, and then you subsidize demand, well, well, that's pretty easy. You're going to get higher prices. So, um, so I, that I think is another really big problem with uh, where our workforce policy really is right now. Um, it it's this kind of one size fits all, or maybe two sizes fits all. You have this blue collar track of manufacturing worker, and then this white collar track of college educated worker, ignoring that there's this. Uh, gray collar area, right? Um, there's this giant middle ground um, that that has nothing to do with those traditional uh, pathways that that policy is promoting, and it's kind of I think siloing people in into the wrong approach. Um, and then I think, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so a big 
theme then seems to be that the economy is such an ever-changing thing that government policy literally cannot keep up. And it tends to be based on out-of-date misconceptions. And For you sure. write that workers are uh, in more fluid labor markets like that in the United States uh, versus labor markets with more regulations, more so-called worker protections in places like many countries in Europe, they actually get a number of benefits from that because the market's better able to keep up with that changing reality. What are some of the benefits for workers in more fluid markets? And this, this I think, gets to another fundamental misunderstanding of a lot of pro-worker policy. Um, if, again, you're, if you listen to, to Joe Biden and if you listen to a lot of uh, congressional Republicans these days, so uh, on the more populist side of things, you think that the American worker uh, is not only struggling with paying bills and wages, but also really needs protection, needs protection from foreign competition, needs uh, protection from greedy corporations that have, say, monopsony power in the workplace, um, and needs uh, government help. So the, the workers really can't help themselves as much as they need the government to, to basically protect them from cradle to grave. Um, that, in fact, that was actually a Politico headline earlier this year talking about Biden's proposals for the American worker are support from cradle to grave. Now, the reality, as you note, is that uh, too much protection from the government can actually be a very bad thing. Uh, you know, leaving, I mean, we can start, of course, with a lot of protectionism just simply raises prices, right? When you restrict imports of, say, nails, right? You increase nail prices when you restrict uh, imports. Uh, we have, you know, of food and clothing and the rest, you make workers have to pay more for those things. Now, that, of course, makes us poorer in real terms than we would be if we had easy access uh, to lower cost necessities. Uh, energy is another major area where we, we jack up prices of, of basic necessities for workers. Uh, I mentioned Childcare, that's another area where regulations uh, increase those prices. So uh, protection raises a lot of prices for American workers, but it also harms American workers on the worker side of things, on in terms of wages and job quality. Because what happens is in places like Europe that have these very, what we call active labor market policies, they essentially restrict uh, firing, hiring and firing. Um, and they uh, really limit the ability of workers to change jobs and kind of keep workers in the same place, right? Job security is the goal. Well, what studies show, there was a great study out last year um, by an economist who simply tracked uh, wage growth and productivity growth um, for workers in the United States, where we have a, a looser, more fluid labor market with fewer protections, um, you know, very. This is a very scary thing, I guess, according to uh, the political class in Washington. Uh, problem to be solved, um, and he, what the economist did is compared that to the more protected and less fluid labor markets in Europe. 
uh, in the rest of the OECD industrialized economies. And what he found was that uh, the American workers in this more fluid, less protected market actually ended up with substantially higher lifetime earnings and wage growth than their European counterparts. So essentially, uh, the price we all pay for having less protection is we actually end up wealthier. We actually end up with higher wages. Now, how can that be, right? Well, this goes back to what I was talking about, about labor dynamism, about the ability to change jobs. If you stay in the same job for your entire life, uh, and if, especially if your employer knows you're staying in that job for your entire life. Um, now, that that might sound good to certain policymakers, right? Oh, you know, you have 50 years of stable employment. But the fact is that changing jobs has a lot of benefits. Um, it First of all, uh, job moves tend to be linked to higher wages. Uh, when you stay in your current job, you might get a 2% raise per year. When you move to a different job, you end up with a 10% raise or whatever, right? And that bumps you up to that next level. But it's also just simply about productivity. Um, workers sort better. They move, they tend to move to better jobs, jobs to which they're better suited to do. If you um, if you start, for example, working for a certain company, making a certain product or delivering a certain service, uh, and you realize a few years in, you know, this really isn't, isn't my thing, you move to a totally different profession or you just move to a different company that has a better better match, well, you end up being more productive. Uh, and productivity tends to drive lifetime earnings and wage growth. And that, of course, is good for the U.S. economy as well. Uh, so, so we want this type of labor market fluidity that is only, again, associated with uh, United States-style labor markets. And unfortunately, again, a lot of pro-worker policy today really wants to shut that down. Uh, wants to create a far more sclerotic uh, labor market in which uh, it's very difficult to hire or fire people. Uh, wages are far more regulated. Uh, the types of jobs that we allow are far more restricted. So we're not going to allow independent workers, uh, freelancers, only in very limited conditions. California has already done this with uh, AB5, which uh, really dramatically limits not just gig work, but uh, say uh, owner-operator truckers who, who you know own their own rig and 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 work and a lot of freelance work as well. So say photographers and that kind of thing. So um, to the extent that our labor regulation restricts that type of dynamism and that type of fluidity and creates a European style system, uh, it has long term harms for the very workers that we're trying to help. Now, I'll, I'll conclude with saying that you know. Um, that this is all very nice. It's very nice and academic, but what? How does this actually, you know, translate to the real world, right? Uh, well, it turns out we're actually conducting a a, a real time experiment with uh, this this theory or this this proposal for, um, from this economic study, uh, because Europe again, we've gone through a, a major labor market shock, right, in the pandemic, uh, that was highly disruptive to traditional labor markets and all sorts 
of ways. Uh, you know, I mentioned remote work earlier. You know, we've had seen a dramatic increase in remote work, but also just in the types of industries that were open and closed. You know, all of a sudden, restaurants didn't have any uh, need for workers, right? And uh, we saw an increase in e-commerce and delivery, right? So massive disruptions in the global economy and national economies. And so then we say, well, let's take the more dynamic U.S. labor market and compare it to the more dynamic European market. Well, the Wall Street Journal, Journal did, did just this a few months ago, and they found that uh, underemployment was far more pervasive in Europe. That So this is basically people who are working but not working as much as they want. Um, so they found that that was um, that unemployment, so underemployment and unemployment were higher in Europe than in the United States. Wages uh, were more depressed in Europe than they were in the United States. And that the U.S. labor market had basically fully recovered by this spring, whereas the European labor markets, and this is, of course, before the Russia-Ukraine stuff, which is a, a different animal, um, the U.S. labor market had totally recovered while Europe's labor market remained severely depressed. And again, before Russia-Ukraine kind of scuttled all of that experiment. So we have some real-world evidence that uh, for, for it, labor protections sound great, right? They sound very much like they're pro-worker. At the end of the day, they can actually make us make us work soft. Right, and I know they have issues with higher youth unemployment in much of Europe as well. Uh, but to move uh, to some of the details of the chapters in the book, we would be remiss if we didn't discuss the rise of remote work. That has been a huge change, obviously, for the American worker. And you wrote the chapter on remote work in this book. How does that affect things? Sure. Well, this is this is personal for me because I've been a, a remote worker uh, since about 2010. Uh, so early on, I was an OG remote worker um, and have uh, kind of experienced firsthand the, the benefits of remote work, but also uh, U.S. government, state, and federal policies that restrict remote work. Uh, and then I've also had the, the joy of watching the rest of the world kind of come to my uh, style of work, at, at least uh, large chunks of it, right? So, um, so let's start with what's happened. Uh, pandemic obviously uh, created a dramatic need for people to not be uh, leaving their houses, not be going into offices, uh, particularly early on, uh, not be sitting on trains with each other and the rest, right? So um, this led to a dramatic spike in remote work. Uh, which was greatly assisted, of course, by technologies. It was something, you know, Megan McArdle at the Washington Post had this awesome article uh, about a year ago about how, yes, the pandemic was bad, but just imagine if it had happened 20 years ago in terms of technology for things like remote work, right? I mean, I'm talking to you right now uh, via a remote, basically a remote work setup, uh, and, and that technology, you know, didn't really exist. Heck, when I started in 2010, the, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, uh, dinosaur level technology in comparison to what we have today. So that allowed a lot of remote workers, uh, and not just in lawyering or white collar knowledge work, uh, even in some, a lot of blue collar fields, uh, more workers were able to, to engage in remote work. 
Now, that uh, was expected during the early days of the pandemic. But what we've seen is that it's actually persisted for a large chunk of the U U.S. workforce. Um, today, um, even as more places are reopening, even as you read the stories, bosses are calling people back into the office. Um, as of late summer 2022, you still had about 30%, give or take, of all work hours being done remotely. About 30% of days, in other words, um, were being, uh, so about you know, two days a week, people were working remotely. Um, we still had large chunks of the workforce that were full-time remote. Um, and that's up from, so that 30% number I figure I gave you, uh, that's up from about 5% before the pandemic. Now, uh, to give you an idea of how many workers that is, because then, you know, what's what's 5%, what's 30%, we're talking about tens of millions of Americans who are suddenly not going into the office um, and might be moving long distances to uh, away from their offices since they don't have to go in as much. Now, this has all sorts of economic implications. Uh, you know, we've seen the housing market has changed pretty significantly. Um, you know, no, New York City isn't dying, but uh, commercial space in New York is radically different than it was before the pandemic. Uh, different cities uh, known for quality of life, like for example, where I live here in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, saw a traumatic influx in people who used to live in New York City who now had the freedom to live elsewhere and were moving there. And that's going to have implications for the local economy, for the housing market and all that. Very cool, interesting stuff. Uh, it's actually also going to have implications for uh, for different types of workers. So we've seen, for example, that uh, remote work has been a boon for disabled workers um, because now it's you know there's no commute involved. A lot more can be done from from a, a desk, uh, and we've seen it. Of course, it's a boon for parents. Uh, you know, working parents. Uh, you know, I I can speak from experience here, right? You know, I I when I worked remotely, I still do. I'm able to put my daughter to bed every night. I can do a lot more of that type of family activity. Now, I, I will say you need a lock on your office door if you're going to do that. But uh, as long as you have, you know, uh, some space, uh, it's a it's a pretty awesome thing for for parents as well. So remote work has a lot of benefits. Um, certainly, it's not for everybody. Um, but we've seen that that the early data also show that workers are more productive when they work remotely. Uh, the productivity goes up by 5-10%. Uh, and that's, again, contrary to the conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is that we would all sit home in our pajamas. We wouldn't do much work. We'd watch Netflix all day, and the whole economy would, would collapse. That really hasn't been the case. That workers like this. They want this. They're willing to take a little bit of lower wages so they can have this flexibility and this freedom um, from remote work. So that's, for the most part, remote work has been a really good thing. Um, but, and here's where the policy recommendations come in. Uh, the fact is that U.S. policy is uh, years, if not decades, behind where it needs to be when it comes to remote work. Um, you start with somewhat easy things, um, you think, like taxes. So, for example, um, some states uh, tax workers based, based on their physical location. So since I'm in North Carolina, I pay North Carolina taxes. 
Some other states, however, tax based on where your company headquarters are. So I instead, if, since I work for Cato at a, in, a, in Washington, uh, I would have to pay Washington, D.C. taxes. Um, so this creates a ton of confusion for workers. It potentially subjects workers and businesses to penalties. And it just, again, it really hasn't kept up. Um, there are also tons of confusion right now about um, benefits. So, and about, well, so like, is the laptop that a worker, a remote worker is given to do work remotely, is that a fringe benefit? How do we tax that? Uh, what about commuting, right? Um, you know, tax law says that business travel is deductible, but your commute isn't. Well, if I travel four hours up I-95 to Cato, is that a commute or is it a business travel expense? So all that kind of confusion and the rest can discourage remote work, right? Because to the extent there's uncertainty, to the extent that workers might end up on the hook uh, for additional taxes, to the extent that employers might under be have penalties or have to go through some kind of bizarre tax uh, issues, um, that all confounds remote work. Um, and there are plenty of other issues out there. For example, occupational licensing restrictions come into play. So I was, for a while, a practicing attorney. Now, even though I was doing international trade law for a uh, Washington, D.C.-based law firm, I had to join the North Carolina bar because I was practicing law in North Carolina. Now, I wasn't doing any North Carolina law. Uh, I, wasn't, I didn't throw out a shingle on my house saying, please come in, I'm going to give you legal services. Most of my clients were overseas. Um, didn't matter. I had to be a practicing member of the North Carolina bar. So occupational licensing restrictions can, again, inhibit remote work and, and inhibit uh, worker mobility. Um, and again, the kind of natural beneficial term. So what we do in the remote work chapter is we say, look, remote work tends to be a pretty good thing. A lot of workers really value this. This seems to be the new normal but state and federal policy really haven't kept up. And then we have offer reforms about how to improve the law to provide consistency and clarity and to allow workers to work where they want to work and do what they want to do. Um, and again, this isn't for everybody. I know some people love going into the office. I think those people are psychotic, but they like to go into the office and that's still perfectly fine. But for, a, for, the, for the big chunk of the workforce, for the millions of American workers that have found they like remote work, for the employers that think remote work is a uh, good thing for them, you know, they have a bigger work pool, they see better productivity or happier workforce. Um, we should have policy that it doesn't discriminate against remote work as it currently does. We shouldn't be subsidizing remote work. That's, of course, the wrong approach too. policy should just simply be neutral as between the two. And I think you know, that's kind of a big theme of this book is we shouldn't try to predict what the future of work is either, right? Well, I say, look, a lot of worker policies are outdated. They're all very stereotypical. I'm not saying, oh, this is the new worker, you know, even though the title of the book is new worker. Well, instead, what we need is policy that maximizes uh, or uh, maximizes flexibility and adaptation, right? Is neutral across platforms and lets workers and employers sort it out themselves because quite frankly markets are really good at that sorting process over time we should just let them work a little better absolutely and because this is the human progress podcast and we usually try to end on a positive note could you uh, just 
sum up, although you've covered many different aspects of this, um, why you believe market-based solutions can help empower the American worker and create a more prosperous future. Sure. So um, I think the, the place to start with that answer is simply to uh, look at where markets uh, aren't functioning right now in when it comes to the the American workforce. And time and time again, what you see is that the things that workers are worried about, the things that they care about, um, are not uh, a a result of a of a market failure. They're not that free markets have failed and we need more government. And what turns out when you look at when you dig into these, it's at time and time again, um, the problem is that we haven't allowed markets to work. That uh, we have just simply bogged down uh, the either labor dynamism, like I mentioned, with all sorts of rules and regulations and restrictions, um, or we've increased the costs of, of basic necessities. And so the, 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 the solution there, and there's plenty of research showing that you can actually um, you know, improve these issues by embracing market-based reforms. For example, in childcare, you can, uh, there are simple things that can be done to allow for a greater supply of childcare services to lower prices in terms of childcare. So I think that uh, the first point is that we really need to acknowledge that the vast majority of those market failures out there aren't market failures at all. They're, they're government failures. And, and that um, embracing market-based solutions can provide cheaper, better uh, delivery of those essential goods and services, can provide um, you know, again, allow workers to achieve the lives that they really want, not the lives that serve some policymaker somewhere in Washington thinks they have to have or, or, or should have. Um, but the second reason I think for optimism is that in certain areas, and we note this throughout the book, um, particularly at the state level, we're seeing market-based experimentation with um, reforms that are proving to be wildly successful in, in the near, at least in the short term, right? A lot of these things are just recently embraced. Um, so, you know, you take, I think, uh, criminal justice is a great example of this. Uh, research shows that workers with a criminal record, even just an arrest that was later uh, acquitted, uh, you know, so you didn't even go to jail, you didn't even get convicted. Um, well, those arrest records can dramatically uh, inhibit your ability to get a job, to change jobs, because a criminal record is a tough thing. You have to carry around, you have to tell your employers about an arrest. So states have, some states have uh, embraced expungement, uh, which simply automatically wipes that record away if you've been in good standing for a few years. Well, we see, again, uh, a robust response in the in the workforce in terms of higher, uh, uh, less unemployment, uh, higher wages for a lot of workers. We've seen uh, reforms in occupational licensing in places like Arizona that have started to say, uh, you know what? Come on in. If you have a, if you've been licensed anywhere in the country um, for law, medicine, whatever, you are welcome in Arizona. You just basically have to fill out a form, and we automatically grant you the ability to work. Well, we've seen uh, a really positive response there. And heck, during the pandemic, we saw uh, governments 
uh, at the state level waiving a lot of these same restrictions um, because they needed a supply of workers. They needed uh, um, uh, to have a better functioning system in times of crisis. And that, again, has worked out quite well for them uh, and helping to make the pandemic a little less terrible uh, than it otherwise would have been. So the, I think time and time again, we're seeing that there are good solutions out there and that the solutions when they've been experimented with at the state level or even some things at the, at the federal level, like tariff reform, for example, these things tend to be effective. And so I think, you know, the message here is, is not that we need no government policy or whatever, but I think the starting point is to make those market-based reforms. Then let's see where the remaining problems are and then act to fix them. Because right now, everybody just wants to spend more money and regulate more. And so it's just adding another layer of government problems on top of the government-related problems we already have, which is just going to make things worse. So, um, you know, workers turned out to be during the pandemic incredibly resilient incredibly dynamic starting their own business we saw a massive spike in entrepreneurship uh during the pandemic as people lost their jobs and had to go make ends meet elsewhere um and so you know the workers tend to be a lot uh smarter and more resilient than i think our political class makes them out to be uh they tend to want the best for themselves and for their families they want to improve their lives themselves and we just need to kind of get out of the way and let them do that. Uh, and then we can deal with any remaining challenges that might be there. Thank you so much for joining me, Scott. This has been a really fascinating and uplifting conversation. And again, that book is The New American Worker Market Place Solutions for Today's Workforce out this winter, I believe. Yeah. So we'll start rolling out chapters actually next month. Oh. And then the full book will be out in uh, PDF, uh, the electronic version in December, and then a uh, hard copy uh, about a month after that. Oh, very exciting. I look forward to reading it in full. Thank you again so much for joining me. Bye.